Hello and welcome. I'm really excited. It's our third episode in the in the series and we're presenting Blue by Caridad Switch. So yeah, I'm here with uh, Lily. Hello. Hello, everyone. <laughs> Hello. I'm Tamara von Werden and I'm hosting this episode and Lily. I'm in capacity as editor and the director of the audio play this week, which is quite exactly, exciting. which is an exciting little mix in the introduction. So yeah, we do. I just wanted to say a little bit before we start about how we found Blue. So in the summer of 2021, is that right? Yeah. We had, yeah, we had a, our call out to all writers identifying as women worldwide. And we got so many plays in. We got over 400 plays sent to us. And we spent many, the whole... Many, different countries. Yeah, 25 different countries. And we spent many weeks reading I remember I was by the sea actually in Scotland so that was really lovely but I got up really early every morning and read and read and we found Blue we then had a few meetings didn't we and and chatted about the plays and it was always quite high up in the list and I think what really drew us to it was the style but also the scope and the way it foregrounds a female character an older female character and puts them in a battle, in a way, against their own body and in a, in a really challenging situation physically. And then also the themes that it raises about immigration and about the environment, all of that really impressed us. And yeah, we're really excited that we're, we're now able to present it. But I would like you to talk a bit more about how yeah. you're directing it. Well, I'm, I was obviously really, really pleased when we all had met consensus that we wanted this in our top six. As a director, I am generally really, really interested in unstageable plays. Oh, so yeah. <laughs> this play is set, the protagonist is swimming the uh, channel between France and Britain. And I love writing and plays for stage that challenge the director and the designer to come up with a really creative, clever idea of how to solve, yeah, how to stage it. And so, of course, setting a play in the middle of the ocean, following a swimmer and her thoughts as she swims this journey was something that I felt really drawn to and very excited by. So that was one of the main reasons I think I was really interested in doing this. And of course, I've got the easy bit because I get to do it as an audio play, which is slightly easier than having to do it for stage. But nevertheless, you know, I loved the idea of presenting it and platforming this play as well so that other directors might want to do it on stage. Who knows? Maybe I'll do it on stage one day. And then the other thing is that I think Caridad's writing is incredibly interesting and it's very, very clever, but it's also incredibly rhythmical and has a real musicality to it. And so the way she uses words is really fascinating and really lends itself, I think, also to audio and to working with sound. So I think that was also one of the things that I found drew me to the play and of course the topic as well and the themes within the play. But I think the style of the writing and the visual landscape that she was creating for the director to sort of, yeah, come up with 
ideas was something that really made me go yeah I'd really like to do that (laughs) and she's based in the US isn't she so it's been quite difficult to find times when it was the same time zone (laughs) to do the chat time zones that's always a bit of a challenge so it's my evenings her mornings her midday and my evenings and then finding a time for the rehearsal as well so then we cast Irene Jacob who is a fantastic French actress I think I saw her in the affair didn't I yeah the third the third series of that yeah she was in that She's brilliant. And also in a production that I made with Katie Mitchell a few years ago in La Maladie de la Mort at the Bouffe du Nord in Paris. Yeah, so she's a fantastic actor and very, very, very pleased that we got to get to work with her on this. And I was really interested in, because it's set between France and Britain, to have, it could have been a British voice, it didn't need to be a French voice, but I just, I was there, yeah, there was something about it I thought actually having a French swimmer would be very, very interesting and yeah I mean the channel I mean if some of you might know this but I didn't know this before I looked it up but people have swam it that the youngest swimmer was 11 and the oldest swimmer was 73 so far on record and you know men women I think professionals non-professionals swim this I think Caridad based it very loosely on a swim that was swam by a professional who crossed the channel four times in a row so not without break I think it was just four times that she went across so yeah that's kind of what we made and and now I suppose all there is to say is uh, enjoy deep diving into the ocean with our piece and uh, following the protagonist and her swim across this channel across the treacherous channel oh, I'm excited <laughs> <laughs> shall, we, shall we listen to it let's, let's, let's listen to it right blue by Carrie Dadsovich They say it is, but it's really not. It's the reflection, the way it's seen. Water is deceptive. You know, you're in it. It's been minutes, feels like hours. Soon it will be hours more. 54 to be precise, but you're not counting, not yet. Right now it's early, the sun's out. You believe anything is possible, because it is. They call you champ. You're swimming across the channel. It's 21 miles. The water is cold. Breath of days are behind you. You're thinking of the things you haven't done. Dishes for one, they are still in the sink and with them a glass of whiskey you left behind. Not a full glass, just a bit. Memory of its sharpness still on your tongue. So much left undone. This is you not speaking. This is you not dreaming. This is you not feeling the smart of the cold water on your skin. This is you not doing the not doing of all things. Because you would rather be doing this. Water plunges down your back. You arc, you bend, you are civil disobedient. You're good at it. You don't want to think about authority, 
It seems someone is always wanting to alter someone else's life, making rules for being. Let the ocean guide you. In the before days, way before this, your people came by ocean, across several seas. They spoke many tongues and held promises in their hearts. Better days were always ahead, even when rough shores greeted them. Your people had courage. It takes mountains of strength to cross an ocean in several languages to make it somewhere else. And what did they make? They made love, they made a family. They rented an apartment. They worked in factories and stores and hospitals and schools and got paid little for doing much. They worked their entire lives and when they retired, they counted their coins. Because even after working their entire lives, they didn't have enough to live on with any degree of comfort. All that work and what was left of it? Bad knees. Upset stomachs, strange aches, rough sleep. And hope too, that those next in line, the children, the ones like you, would get it right. Because their crossing was the first stage of suffering. Their crossing was the first stage of suffering. So that you, would never have to suffer at all. And what did you make? You made love. You did not make a family, or at least not the blood kind. You rented apartments you couldn't pay, worked in stores and schools and offices, and counted your coins at the end of each day, worried sick about retirement and what you were going to live on in future. You didn't even get to cross. You were stuck on land, the land where your people brought you. And some days all you wanted to do was leave. Your swim coach thinks you're reckless. You shouldn't be doing this, champ. They said you're past your prime as a swimmer. Being a channel swimmer is a young athlete's game. You don't listen to them. You love open water more than anything. Because when you're here, you're just here. And it's just you and the water, and you're telling each other your secrets. Even when the jellyfish want to sting you, shake them off, send them elsewhere. Jellyfish are tricksters. They always want to mess with you. Their tentacles want to dig in even when they're dead. You can't let them, because if you do, they'll do their best to sink you. One bite and you're down, way down deep, lost in sleep. You've been there, once, in the way down. You saw a whole city and all its buildings buried at the bottom of everything. A lost world. You wonder if the people that lived there once thought that they were invincible, just like us.
The smell of the sun surrounds you. It's not a joke. The sun has a smell, and so does the water, and so do the plants, and so does the air. Even the jellyfish have a smell, and you hate them. The earth's a wonder. Amazing that most of us don't live in it. Not really. Most of us barely float through, ignoring all the signs, not even listening to anything except when there are fires. When it's all ablaze, you stop and look and wonder where you fit into everything. Like that last time. Was it the last time? Fires swept through everything. One billion animals died. Do you remember? It was a tragedy. It was the end of the world. Everyone said so. Because in that moment, when all the animals died and the birds burned to a crisp and only the reptiles were left hiding in the soil, you couldn't imagine that more days were to come. More days that would be worse than the days of fire. And better days too, though they would be slow to come by. You even cried. And then many days later, you stopped and forgot all about the animals and never even wondered what had happened to their dead carcasses. You just carried on, thinking about coffee and cereals and the pain in your life. The last time you were in hospital, you felt something like this, pain down your arms. They called it a minestrope. You said, like swimming, like in a kiddie pool. They didn't laugh. Dogs don't tend to laugh. You get it. It's crap most of the time, constant illness, constant anxiety, waves of panic. But surely a laugh can do some good. Dogs said, a mini stroke is a sign. You need to watch yourself. You were, like in a mirror. No laugh. Doc said, maybe you should stop swimming. Swimming's what you do. It's your heartbeat. It's what keeps you sane. It's what's gotten you through everything. Without it, you wouldn't know where you were. Truly. When you do marathons, you aim for the finish, or what some people call catastrophe. Even if it stays ahead. This is your fourth time across the channel. Fourth time covering your skin in goose fat. Fourth time not knowing if you'll make it through. You dream about the rocky beach awaiting you. You dream of the cold white sand burning your feet. You ache in the pre-ache of the massive fatigue that you know will overcome you when you stumble out of the water. And remember, you're alive.
So we're here with Carrie Dutzfitch. Carrie Dutzfitch is a playwright, songwriter, editor, and translator. She was born in the US to Cuban, Argentine, Spanish, Croatian parents and writes in both English and Spanish. She has won a number of awards, including the 2012 OB for Lifetime Achievement in the Theatre, the 2018 ATHE Ellen Stewart Career Achievement in Professional Theatre and the 2018 TAN Foundation Award. She's also won the National Latino Playwriting Award twice. Key works in her repertoire include Twelve Ophelias, Iphigenia Crashland Falls on the Neon Shell That Was Once Her Heart, The Booth Variations, Alchemy of Desire, Dead Man's Blues, Any Place But Here, Archipelago, The Way of Water, and Jarman, All This Maddening Beauty. She is founder of No Passport, the website is nopassport.org, and co-organizer and curator of After Orlando, which was theatre action in response to the 2016 Pulse nightclub shooting with Missing Bolts Productions. Caridad has published numerous books and plays with TCG, Smith & Krauss, Play Scripts, Broadway Play Publishing and others. Her latest book is published by Bloomsbury, 50 Playwrights and Their Craft, and her work for theatre has been performed all over the US and internationally in both Spanish and English, and in theatres ranging from Chile, Uzbekistan, Germany, Costa Rica, Canada, the US and the UK. This episode is hosted by me, Tamara van Wertan, and my co-host, Josephine Start. Hello. So really amazing, the range of work you've done, and I feel very humbled <laughs> and honoured to meet you. It's lovely to have you here on the podcast. Before we start, now, this question might sound a little bit odd because it's nothing at all about the theatre, but we always ask everyone what their favourite sweet is. So it could be a sweet that they enjoy now or a childhood <laughs> sweet. <laughs> and the reason for it is that because we're fizzy sherbet, we've in our live shows, we've always been giving fizzy sherbet sweets. So like little lemon sherbet drops to the audience. Favorite sweet. What a great question this is. Um, does like, um, it doesn't have to be hard candy, does it? Can it be it something else? It could be anything. Oh, okay. <laughs> I mean, Good. some people have had crisps as their favorite sweets. So this is how wide you oh. range. <laughs> it's a wide range. I will say tiramisu. I okay. love, love, love tiramisu. Yeah, it's my, I crumple. I, when I see one, I just have to have it. And it's a very bad, it's a bad thing. <laughs> but I love no, it too much. <laughs> I completely understand that. I have that as well. I love tiramisu. Is that um, connected with any traveling in Italy or any any memories or just to run? No, it's usually, well, I'm a huge coffee person. So I think that it, it's come through wanting to have something with the coffee. <laughs> and I got tired of having biscottis all the time. So, um, and then I discovered the tiramisu uh, sort of really by chance. Um, and then I, I was like, oh, yeah, more coffee. More. <laughs> this goes perfectly with coffee, you know, so, so it, it started there. And then it's just kind of evolved uh, from that. But it's, but it's like my, like, you know, once a month, I just treat myself. and I have one because make it special. So I'm, I'm not like having it all the time. And, and therefore, it loses its appeal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, so, um, Caridad, um, We've just heard your amazing play, Blue. Um, what inspired you to write it? What's the story? Blue, um, well, I wrote it, oh gosh, maybe right at the top of lockdown in 2020. 
which feels like a thousand years ago. Um, uh, I had I had several shows, you know, stop in their tracks, and all of them had had various, uh, you know, multiple years of development and meetings and all those things. So I was feeling, you know, obviously despondent. Um, at the same time, I was like, well, okay, uh, and then I. I just decided, you know, I was in the middle of writing two things that, that were, that had been commissioned. So I knew I had to deliver them no matter what, you know what I mean? I had a deadline um, and I thought, okay, I'll get these done and then I'll write stuff that I want to write. You know what I mean? It, I know that sounds really silly, right? It's sort of like, obviously the commission is a lovely thing, but sometimes it feels like it's dutiful. Do you know what I mean? You're doing labor. Um, and I just was like, oh, that feels like work. I want to do something that doesn't feel like work. And so... Uh, I think the first piece that I wrote, I wrote like a ton of stuff uh, in the last year and a half. And Blue um, was maybe the first piece I wrote coming out of that. Um, so it was like a, a desire to kind of get back to my own mm. mojo, concerns, et cetera. I've always wanted to write something about a swimmer. And I just never had the guts to do it, you know. And I thought, well, if I make it a short piece... <laughs> It won't seem so daunting, you know, so I thought, oh, this will be a, a you know, a good experiment uh, to try this idea out. It also, you know, evolves from partly from my work on another piece called Red Bike, which is about a, a, a child on a bike and they're taking a bike ride and they're discovered they're having a political awakening on that bike ride. And and so I thought, OK, I've dealt with something that that's set on land. I want to do something that's set in water. And I've written a lot of plays that are water plays that are kind of like their dramaturgy is sort of what I call water turgy. Um, so that it's, uh, yeah, they're kind of like not, they're porous, you know, uh, fluid, uh, memory comes in and out, or time and space are collapsed, you know, all those things. But also, I think from a political angle, I'm interested in the idea of water being a kind of stateless kind of zone, that it, that it kind of just the ocean is the ocean until somebody decides that it's not for everyone, right? So I think that, so I think that that's like a politically charged kind of space to write in because it contests a lot of ideas about territory and ownership. And and then I thought, and then I love the athleticism of swimming. And and it's what's this may sound like all terribly roundabout, but I wrote a piece. Okay, so there's <laughs> there's a journal called Howl Round, which is a lovely journal. You may know it. And they had oh my gosh, not the last Olympics, but the maybe a couple of Olympics ago, Summer Olympics ago, they asked writers to write about watching their favorite sport for the Summer Olympics. So it didn't have to be like, I watch this play and blah, blah, blah. You know, it was like, write about, you know. And I was like, oh, great, I can write about swimming. <laughs> You know? And so I wrote a piece about swimming. And I think that as I was starting this piece, I was, you know, because I've written so much, I sometimes forget what I've written. I was like, oh, yeah. And then I was like scrolling online. And I know it's a little bit crazy that I was Googling myself. But there I was Googling myself. And so and that piece came up and I had totally forgotten about it. Yeah, I was like, oh, my God, I love this this piece that I wrote about like swimmers at the Olympics. And, mm. and I, and I suddenly, so those, all those things came together to make blue. And then I just, you know, literally I dove in and I wrote the play. Yeah. That's it. I love what you're saying about the, um, the politically charged um, nature of writing about being in water, you know, big bodies of water and, and the play is set in the French English channel was yeah. that chosen for any specific reason I mean obviously it is a famous swim in itself but um, was there anything else going on there uh yeah famous swim 
it's a, it's one of the most arduous. Mm -hmm. So I was interested in the idea of exertion. It's choppy water. It's hard. Uh, it's it's very dangerous. <laughs> um, and then of course I you know I've uh, like what feels like a million years ago. I wanted to write a piece about the waves of migration and asylum seekers that are that are coming through both the channel, but also the coast of uh, Spain. And so I, so I sort of, that was sort of tucked way, way back, back in my mind of like, you know, ter you know, water territory, which sounds like a conundrum, but water territories that, that have with them and is part of them histories of multiple crossings that, that are fraught. Um, so not just the athletic part of it, but also that uh, politically fraught. And, and also I was thinking a lot about Brexit. Uh, so when I was writing this and kind of um, how can one not? Um, and, and thinking about the idea of isolation, the idea of the English being isolated suddenly and this notion of crossing, mm -hmm. I think becomes kind of politically resistant then, you know? Yeah, it's really interesting. And, and when you say isolating, it's sort of how Britain is isolated, but it's also the personal isolation in the water. And it's something that we're all experiencing at the moment um, with COVID as well. Yeah. Um, and I think it's very powerful how it, um, it works on so many levels and it has so many layers within it. So, yeah, I, I was also wondering about, this is a slightly different question now, not about blue, but about the languages that you write in. I mean, I assume that mostly you write in, in English or you, how, how's the percentage of what your work, how much of yeah, your work? I most, yeah, I mostly write in English. I've written uh, a number of plays in Spanish first and then translated myself into English. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but English tends to be my writing language. Um, uh, but I dream in both, obviously, and I grew up bilingually, so that's always going to be there no matter no matter what I do. Um, but yeah, I think that I have a, I think because my identity as a writer was formed around my enchantment with like English word, you know, like I sort of like, I was one of those kids like in the fourth grade was reading Shakespeare just for fun. And the fun, the fun was like, I thought that the language was like amazing, but I couldn't figure it out, <laughs> you know? And so I think that, that, I think that sort of ignited something in me as someone at that time, like in the fourth grade, I didn't know I wanted to be a writer. I, I was attracted to writing, but you know, that wasn't like on my purview. Um, but over the years kind of like, just kind of reinforced itself. So I think that I, I kind of, I kind of feel like as a child of immigrants, I feel like there's always this notion of having to conquer the language that wasn't your parents' language in a way, although I don't like the word conquer, <laughs> uh, but you want to kind of be like super proficient at it or better at it than anybody or whatever those terms are uh, of arrogance that are attached themselves to language. And um, and so, so yeah, so I think it's partly it was enchantment and part of it is also like, yeah, I wanted to really kick ass as a as a writer English. So so I think it kind of forced me in that direction. But you know, but now I don't worry about it so much. I mean, sometimes the work is in different kinds of languages, and then I just kind of yeah. make a decision, like at the end, whether I want to translate it all or whether I want to have it multilingual or whatever I want to do with it. Yeah, I, fi I find that very interesting because I'm also bilingual, and um, I I was wondering if you kind of discover different things about when you write in different languages. Absolutely. I discover different things. In Spanish, my writing is uh, 
Oh my gosh. I just had a reading last night of one of my plays in Spanish. So I'm full of, you know, there is fresh in my brain. Yeah. It's like super emotional and super emotional. It tends to be very transparent and very kind of like, Fire, uh, I, don't, uh, I was going to say the word fiery, but that's going to sound like a stereotype. But uh, more like it's just full of, um, like people have big scenes and they confront each other, <laughs> which I tend not to do when I write in English. So, so in Spanish, I release my kind of like play play uh, engine uh, as a writer a lot more. And there's also um, a sort of more, one thing that I've been doing in kind of moving between the languages because in the process of having to like translate myself, excuse me, into English and then back again and back again, I've, especially when I'm doing rewrites uh, on projects, I've discovered like how to, how to take some of the stuff that I do in Spanish and morph it into what I call my English sounding voice. And then kind of like do, I have like coded things that I do with myself as a writer. No one else would know them that are like wink, winks to myself around, oh, this is like me really in Spanish, but haha, it's in English. And, you know, I said, that's like, all, I mean, that's sort of silly writer stuff, but, uh, but I feel like it's a way to kind of keep that side of my writing brain alive still even when I'm writing in English and I and I do it the same when I'm in Spanish like sometimes I'll write a scene and I'll be like oh you know how do I make how do I English this you know what I mean and then I kind of like write the scene again uh, it's a fun you know it's it's uh, a fun challenge and but yeah the oh my gosh such I had like five confrontation scenes last night in my play I was like I never do that why am I doing that it was crazy it was fun. fascinating it's really, really amazing. It's like a superpower as well, because you approach the language from the outside, or I think you can, maybe in English, you approach it more on the outs, from the outside, but then the other language, you you can access something that you can't access so directly in, in English. So that's, yeah, it's a really interesting insight. Thank you. I am, yeah, I, I mean, it sounds like a fantastic editing tool as much as anything, because it's kind of, it's that thing of putting a, um, a filter on and being like what about through this what about through this I'm also really curious so one thing I I, I loved in in your text in the play was obviously it moves around quite a lot and the, the thought kind of darts around but there's a particular section which is um the protagonist sort of considering themselves versus their older generations or perhaps parents or grandparents and that experience of being the child of immigrants and so so in this podcast like we are all either immigrants or children of immigrants so it's an experience that's that's quite shared and I think what I what I find really striking about it is it's um, you really tap into that different relationship to land but also the different senses of um I guess different privileges so like for one older generation it's that thing of of having to make the journey, having to kind of fit in in a place, but then being able to make a journey. Whereas for the younger generation or for the, for the protagonist, feeling very stuck and unable to afford to kind of, to move out. And um, I just wondered if you could say a bit more about that feeling and whether, because I, I suppose it could be read as sort of resentment or envy even of a different set of difficulties, but um, I think it's more complex than that. Um, could you say more? Yes, thank you for the question. Oh my, yes. Uh, envy, that's an interesting word. I think that there's a kind of awe. Mm. When I think about even just my parents, you know, sort of coming to the States as grown-ups, 
having had lives and, you know, and remaking themselves here from their very, very, very different lives. I mean, my dad was a professional soccer player in Latin America. He also played for a team in Canada. My mom was a school teacher in Cuba. Um, you know, they married and suddenly they were living in Canada. And, you know, so they were already displaced, you know, before everything. My dad had been traveling all around the world and played for different soccer teams. And then they made the decision to come to the States and literally his athletic career was over. He had to start like again, he had trained as an accountant and thought he would do that and then realized, I hate accounting. <laughs> um, and suddenly it was like literally and learning a new language and, and then having a child and like all these things. And I just thought, and I'm, you know, and I think that sometimes one can complain about, oh, things are so hard and <laughs> I have to get up in the morning and do work or whatever. And it's like, my parents went through all this like as grown-ups and like it's hard to learn a new language when you're an adult and like you've had a whole life and like and learn new customs and everything you know so I just was like I'm just in awe you know and I think that there's a kind of privilege around being a child of immigrants because in some ways you do have a I'm not saying it's easy, but I think that there's a kind of ease in fact that that you haven't made all those all those different kinds of crossings. You're making other kinds of crossings, right? Uh, and so, and then you're also in that middle space of trying to negotiate those crossings, right? I think first generation kids are are the ones that are like in limbo, right? Like they're kind of like a foot in one place, a foot in the other. You know, memories of the parents in their head. Also, they have perhaps a connection to those lands that their parents come from, but but they've never maybe been there, you know, so there's all this kind of, uh, in Spanish, there's this beautiful word called añoramiento, which I think the closest word for that in English is yearning, but it's not quite right. I think yearning is a little bit softer and añoramiento has a little bit more of a kick in it uh, as a word. It's a little bit harder, you know, it's ache, it's wounding, you know, it's hard. Um, and I feel like uh, first-gen kids tend to have añoramiento, for like phantom memories that are not theirs, you know? So it's like, ah, oh, memories of when my parents were, you know, adolescents in their respective countries. And like, there's like, I'll never experience that. Those countries have radically changed. I have no idea like what that's like, right? So, so I think that it's a very, uh, the mental space that you're living in is um, peculiar. I mean, on one hand, you're full of storytelling, right? It's kind of like stories or kind of inundated with stories. You're also trying to figure out what your story is, like on a literal, like, what is your life script? You know, like, what are you doing? What is your journey? And you're trying to negotiate where you fit in, you know? And I think that that subsequent generations, I think maybe, uh, maybe, question mm -hmm. mark, uh, depending on the political situation, maybe uh, negotiate that a little bit easier. But I think when you're in that first generation, you also, you, you uh, you're negotiating a lot and you're also, you feel the weight of responsibility very heavily to do well, I think. You know, there's that kind of pressure to, well, my parents went through all this, I better, <laughs> I better fess up, you know? So I think that there's a, there's a kind of like, I was gonna say burden, it's not a burden, but I do think, yeah, responsibility, I think there's a kind of like extra, there's an extra responsibility because you do feel like you need to, you know, honor, there are multiple crossings, you know, to be honest. And so, and it feels like no matter, no matter what many things, there are many things to sort of like, oppre uh, you know, oppressions and resistances that one experiences in life. But I think that those are small in comparison to the, the kind of crossings that um, 
mm. you know, certainly family has gone through. Uh, and then I have like, you know, all of my families are also first gen. So it's like my dad's family emigrated from Croatia to Argentina. My mom's family immigrated from Spain to Cuba, you know, fleeing fascism and fleeing, you know, Mussolini and fleeing, you know, so I think that there's a kind of like very complicated strands of like my, my respective parents, you know, were, were also kind of on their own terms negotiating first genness too uh, for them. So, yeah, so it's a, That's yeah. Because I think it, it's, yeah. it's that sense of always being a little bit on the outside of, of where you are, which I think can be really valuable for a writer of being like, I don't quite yes. belong to this so I can watch it and I can mm -hmm. I can see it from the outside. But um, but I guess if that's repeated through generations of just kind of always outsiders or at least for quite a long way back, that's. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's I mean, it's sort of it's a strong word, but um, we were recording a, another interview the other day, but it's 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 sort of its own trauma in a way, that sort of inherited sense of I don't quite belong. I don't quite belong. Um, yeah, right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So that's it's all over my writing. You know what I mean? And mm -hmm. and I think I've become more conscious of it um, over the years. Uh, I think I used to hide it, I think. <laughs> A little bit in my early work uh but now i'm like oh it's there it's fine <laughs> make peace with it it's all good <laughs> so just getting back to um just getting back to, to the swimming um, yeah. in the um what do you see as the relationship between swimming and thinking because i think that's another really interesting part of the piece this is kind of physical mental relationship and i know when i swim i love swimming i like out door swimming there's a real kind of um synergy i think between the the, the moving and the thinking um is that yeah, something that you're yeah. exploring as well yeah yeah i'm um i wanted something i think one of the reasons that i chose you asked me about the channel earlier Lena, and one of the other reasons that i chose it and i chose the idea of a marathon swimmer is because it's not like a pool you know yeah. uh and and in that sense there's a connection to the natural world if you're in the ocean, uh, which I think is uh, something that, you know, as we're seeing you know, what's happening in the world, you know, in the last 50 years or so or during accelerated climate change is that a continual uh, reinforcement from capital to divorce, to encourage uh, people to divorce themselves from the natural world, basically, and to only see it as something to be extracted from. Uh, and so, so one of the impetuses around um, placing, you know, using the swimmer as a kind of device or vehicle for the storytelling is, um, is also embedded in that idea of like, you can't escape the natural world, you are part of it uh, when you're swimming. And, um, and also you're affected by the sun and what's underneath and what's around you, you know, like, um, and so there's, there's kind of no place to hide, uh, which I, I thought, A, would be exciting drama. Uh, I also thought that in terms of thought process, how do you sustain yourself for a long swim? You know what I mean? How do you kind of like, at some point, you're, you're, there is this, I think, perhaps I'm inventing this, I don't think so. Um, but a, a kind of thing that happens in your brain where you're like, my body's swimming, I can be thinking about other things. My body's swimming, I think, you know what I mean? Like it's a, because you can't be thinking about your swimming, right? Like you have, you have to, your body is alert and aware of what it's doing, but it's also, you've been going for such a long time that at a certain point, 
there's a there's a kind of suspension that occurs. And so so I wanted to play with that idea of in the natural world, connected to the natural world, the body exerting itself. Um, there's a destination. So that, I thought that was a really important. And then a concrete one that you can sort of see in your mind's eye. And then the idea of like being able to suspend, being able to kind of like that the act of swimming, that the, the body is sort of uh, initiating thought uh, in that way, um, you know, which, you know, I think writing is a corporeal act. So, so, you know, I'm interested in how the body and writing kind of are united. Um, and this is an expression of that, you know, in, in this piece. Great. I think it works really well. I also was wondering when you were writing it, were you writing it with um, the idea of it being an audio piece or were you thinking about it being staged? And if you were thinking about it being staged, how did you have any ideas about it or did you just see it in your, in your mind as set, being set in the channel? Yeah, I wrote it as a kind of modular piece. So, because it's something I've been experimenting with uh, the last couple of plays of how could it live as audio or digital or live or hybrid or, you know, like, um, and of course, what that means is that, that the work on the page has to work differently, right? Like I, if I'm writing purely for the stage, then, then those plays function in a very different way in terms of dramaturgy. But when I'm thinking as a mod, as something that could be modular and that could be just kind of installed in different situations, then I tend to work much freer on the page and and also invite, hopefully, invite collaborators to, to bring their artistry and creativity to bear uh, in ways that are, you know, like my answer to that is like, surprise me. <laughs> Like, surprise yeah. me with what you do. Um, I have a very strong audio, musical, like, sort of musical audio. Like, I, I lead with the ear as a writer. Uh, so so I think that that's always there, no matter if it's an audio piece or not. I did a, I was part of a, Duska uh, Radosalievich has this uh, wonderful uh, podcast. I don't know if you know about it. It's, it's called, uh, well, it's actually a website called Oral Dramaturgies, A-U-R-A-L, yeah, uh, or Dramaturgies. And um, and then she's done like podcasts within that. And I was part of one of those. And, and we talked about something, what's interesting in relationship to this piece, because it's, that was also a piece about the water, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, water. But in that piece, I was talking about the ice. So the idea of like, um, how do you listen to water? How do you listen to ice? How do you listen to the natural world? And then take those kind of rhythms and translate them to spoken language. And so like, so using sort of the rhythms of the natural world to inflect the written signs on the page. That's, that's how I think about it in terms of the dramaturgy, but completely modular. And for me, like the excitement around that is like, for me, the challenges, I should say, is that I don't know how it would work physically <laughs> live. Yes. Like, I'm like, I don't know, but wouldn't that be interesting to find out if one day somebody wants to do this as a live piece? Like, you know, would they be in the water? Would they be on video? Would they be, you know, would they be just in a chair, but then there's a video of them behind them? Like, you know, I, I just think that there's uh, so many opportunities to kind of play, but I definitely think always a very strong uh, sound score mm, uh, as yes. part of it, no matter what, no matter what, yeah. No. Yes, absolutely. I completely pick up on, on the rhythm of it as well, like in, in the physical, the stroke, stroke of it and the, but everything, the whole writing. And, and I just want to open this up a little bit to our listeners. 
because I know that many of you are directors. So please um, contact Caridad if you want to show us uh, this piece uh, on stage or somewhere site specifically <laughs> in the ocean. That would be amazing. <laughs> just did a piece, actually did, just did a piece. We just did Red Bike in Washington DC as an audio installation where there were three actors who had recorded the audio. So that was like a whole a production on audio, obviously. And then the audience would walk in and get a head, pair of headphones and listen. They were listening to the play, but then we had a live actor on a bike kind of moving through the audience. So they were experiencing kind of a live physical event and this kind of audio event at the same time. Um, uh, and in a, in a sort of the way it was set up is a company called Pan Underground. They set it up so that it was like community um, you know, the shops and the vendor, you know, vendors and, and it was treated as a community celebration inside of that. So, um, and I thought, oh, how cool, like a live component that you're kind of watching and uh, around in, but you also are immersed in this audio experience. And um, yeah, so I could imagine like a version of this where it's like, you see somebody swimming and, you know, it's a distant in the, in the, you know, way in the distance and then your ear, you're hearing uh, blue, you know. Or you could set it in an aquarium, like the London Aquarium, something like that. Yeah. And then you have everyone standing around with earphones on. Exactly. <laughs> Lot, lots of ideas. So, Caridad, one question we like to kind of finish up on uh, in the podcast with everyone is to ask what women inspire you as a writer and as an artist and they can be women in the arts um, but they don't have to be and the idea is that we're kind of collecting an amazing list of people uh, that people can go away and find out more about so yeah for you as a as a writer and an artist who inspires you oh my uh, well I trained uh, for four years with uh, Maria Irene Fortunes so uh, I have to always mention her because, you know, she <laughs> inspired me immensely. Um, I feel like I, you know, she also directed my work. Um, so, uh, yeah, a huge inspiration and also a kind of career in the arts that is unique uh, and very much um, idiosyncratic. And, yeah, I sort of look at that career and go, my gosh, you know, 40 years in the theater and just making this wide range of plays is really extraordinary and directing and designing and, you know, working with actors so intimately and so beautifully. So definitely Irene. Carol Churchill is always there because, you know, goddess. And then Ento Shange because she was the first writer that I read that showed me something different. You know what I mean? I, I was sort of reading at that time. I think I knew I wanted to be a playwright and, and you know, I was reading a lot, a lot of wonderful plays, but you know, I suddenly read her work and I was like, oh, wait a minute, what? <laughs> you can do this. Uh, and it was just kind of like, you know, permission, you know, it's like she gave us permission, you know, and I feel like that's so important in the arts, you know, to see, to find like, you know, the people that have gone before you that have said, here, this door, you can open this door, you know, Angela Carter for me is someone that also in that vein of like reading her, like, um, a novels sort of like, wow, you can do this, right? You know, and I, I didn't know you could do that. And I did a, I spent, I know I'm citing some people that are famous, but, um, you know, Virginia Woolf, because I, I, I kind of fell head over heels <laughs> with Woolf uh, in grad school. And, you know, I think I'm still kind of smitten, uh, to be honest. Uh, and also because she dealt with consciousness on the page in a way that felt distinctly 
hate to be gendered about this, but it does feel distinctly female. And yeah, and I think of more more recent folks, you know, and the, the people that inspire me, you know, uh, Debbie Tuck Green, who I think is a genius and I kind of, my jaw drops every time I read her work. Um, I'm kind of like, how does she do that? I don't understand. <laughs> it's brilliant. It's brilliant. And um, Eve Lee, whom I love, and uh, Mia Chung, who I think is like really, really talented and amazing writer. Um, and I hope that she hasn't given up writing. I sometimes worry with the pandemic that people are like giving up. So yeah, those are some that come readily to mind, you know, just the just, you know, they're just kind of like, you hold, they hold the light, they hold the light, you know, very, very high and very, very strong and vividly. And then, you know, directors, you know, Agnes Varda, who I think is like uh, another goddess. And, and I feel like someone who, I think some generation, uh, sort of, there's one generation I think discovered her late. And I, I think I just stumbled upon her work once and I just kind of like fell down the rabbit hole, you know, and I was like, oh. And I think I stumbled through her work as kind of a film buff through Demi, right? You know, so I was kind of like, oh, shocked to me. And then I was like, Varda, wait, wait, oh, this is so much more of my jam, you know? And so, uh, and then also to see someone like really just at their craft, like for such a long time, I think the idea of persistence and resilience and, uh, continual exploration, I think, is really, really exciting. As opposed to someone that is saying, "Oh, I'm, I'm branding myself, and this is all I do." Do you know what I mean? Someone that's just like, "Let me discover what else is there." Right. So I think those are the people that inspire me, like who are just kind of like looking at the universe and going, "Okay, let's take it on." You know. And we just lost Bell Hooks um, at the time of this recording, so I, I can't not mention Bell Hooks, who who is extraordinary, and yeah. you know. I, I'm still a little bit shocked that she's not with us, you know, to be honest. But um, the work, the work that she left us is uh, will influence generations, you know, if if we stay on this planet long enough. Yeah. Well, yeah. And on that note, uh, <laughs> we might um, we yeah, we, we might say thank you very much. But this has been absolutely wonderful. Um, thank you so much for chatting with us. And uh, that mean that list uh, on its own is top value. Um, what a what a group of people, and yeah, we can't wait to to show everyone blue and yeah to have it out there. And thanks so much. Fantastic. Okay, so we have now with us Dr. Mauricia Fragu, who's the Senior Lecturer in Performing Arts at the Canterbury Christchurch University. She studied in Athens and London, and her research interests include feminist theatre, precarity and affect, environmental theatres, theatre and race. Her work, Ecologies of Precarity in 21st Century Theatre, Politics, Affect, Responsibility, was published in 2019 by Bloomsbury. So hi, Mauricia, it's lovely to have you with us. Hello, thank you so much for inviting me. No worries. And um, just so you know, listener, it's me, Josephine Start, presenting with the lovely Tamara von Berthen. Hello. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, so, Mauricia, um, we actually start all of the interviews with a slightly strange question, uh, which is unrelated to theatre. Um, but that is, uh, we ask people if they have a favourite sweet or perhaps a favourite childhood sweet or a sweet with a story. So, yeah, do you have a favourite sweet or a sweet with a story? I do have many favourite sweets <laughs> that I really miss at the moment. Um, I don't know if I have a story behind it, but it's um, 
a type of sweet bread that originates in Turkey called sureki, and we use it very much in Greece as well. Um, we eat it all over the year, but particularly during the Easter time. And yeah, I, I really, whenever I go back, I, I eat lots and lots of it. <laughs> How, what's in it is it like a like an almondy type thing it is something in between a panettone and um a brioche so it, but it has a very particular ingredient called machlep so you can't find this here unless you live in a great neighborhood in London with you know all the perfect shops that you can get it from but not here where I live so <laughs> I can't make it um, I think I have a Turkish friend who has talked about that bread as well so yes mm. I it, it's something I would love to try when I get the chance maybe I'll have to find the shops in London <laughs> um, so Marissa can you tell us a little bit more about about your area of research it sounds really interesting um, but can you tell us and the listeners a bit more about what it means um, and and what you do please Absolutely. Um, it's very interesting. Whenever I was um, talking to somebody, I was explaining, okay, what my work is about. It's about precarity, particularly my, my current work. Um, I always got this question. So what does that mean? What, what is this word? And I suppose throughout the years, I've, I've really come to realize that this is, you know, that this word kind of represents things we already really um, feel and know about and connects to a lot of social justice issues. Um, I mean, my work is very much interested in social justice and human rights. And um, I came across this term used very much to capture uncertainties, global uncertainties, uncertainties that have to do with job security. And I sort of started reading around it from a feminist perspective. So I encountered it uh, in philosophy, in Judith Butler's work, uh, where she talks about how some lives are not are more vulnerable than others because of the conditions that uh, do not protect them enough. Although we're all precarious, we're all vulnerable, like in the current pandemic, we're all, you know, open to injury and uh, might, might fall ill. But still, some people are more um, vulnerable than others. So I suppose this is something we sort of experience on a day-to-day -day basis or we are familiar with, but I was very much interested in how uh, marginalized identities are mostly affected and how uh, theater really tackles this um, as, as a platform that gives voice to marginalized identities and uh, really asks difficult questions about you know, the world we live in. So I suppose this is how I was I was drawn into this topic. And maybe it's useful to say that I was always drawn in feminist theater. I, I studied feminist theater at the university. And then my thesis was on Phyllis Nage, who used to write a lot of plays in the 90s when she was living in the UK and then migrated, well, actually went back to the US to do film. And her work on fluidity was also something that really attracted me at that stage. And then my work kind of took on a different direction. So I'm always interested in kind of gender and gender inequalities, but also how these intersect with other aspects. So 
the environmental crisis, for example, is one intersection that I see very much. And I think we all realize now how much it affects all different aspects of uh, the world, like the refugee crisis. So yeah, it's kind of interweaving all these social issues that are so big under one <laughs> banner, uh, under one word that says so much. I'm interested as well. So um, in terms of the relationship to theatre and, and precarity, like you're talking about, is, is your focus, or perhaps it's both, but is your focus more on the, the staging of, of precarity or theatre that comes from precarity? So it com comes from those places potentially. No, that's a great question. And actually it's quite a complex undertaking really to think about precarity because it is very much about the representational, mm. but also the conditions, the material conditions uh, behind the representational. I suppose my work so far was mainly interested in the politics of representation and what representations can do to affect audiences uh, in relation to these very important issues. But I'm, I'm particularly interested in, in these behind the scenes material conditions and I'm following how, you know, artists and theatre makers are very much talking about these ongoing difficulties of, you know, being commissioned, of collaborating, of, of having work during the pandemic. You know, these things are really, really important and I suppose they shape how the artists themselves represent uh, all these issues. Mm. Fantastic. Thinking now about Kawedat Switch's play, Blue, which we've just been listening to, it's, it's quite interesting when you said you're looking through a feminist lens at precarity, because it's a, it's a female protagonist and there are many layers to it. Do you want to talk a little bit more about the play and how that ties in with your own work? Absolutely. I really enjoyed reading Blue and it kind of spoke on so many levels with what I do, interestingly. And it doesn't, I suppose what is interesting is that it doesn't come through in the first few lines, but as you, you read it or you listen to it, you kind of get this sense of, oh my gosh, everything, all this is, uh, is connected. So I think how water um, is this entity that we're all familiar with, but it has all these hidden is this hidden past and something that, you know, we connect with probably something more pleasant, warm, kind of uh, bringing in good memories. Uh, the water can also be very dangerous. It can uh, include risk. It, it has uh, a huge history of, you know, the slave trade uh, where people are, were crossing. Um, so, I suppose it kind of gives you this sense of water is, is not what it seems. And then I was very much, um, I very much enjoyed how, well, well, I appreciate it rather than enjoyed, I think, this reference to aging as one layer of identity that involves this vulnerability that is relevant to my own work and also this migrant history. So we understand from the play that the protagonist comes from a lineage of migrants, uh, is a probably second or third generation migrant who experiences similar conditions in terms of, of their class and everyday life. And what I found interesting is this idea of being stuck mm. in one place. 
Um, and this is something I also uh, encountered a lot in, in plays I was, I was looking at, uh, this idea of and the, the inability to move on. We are stuck in one place or in one uh, situation. Um, during the pandemic, we, we feel being stuck all the time and not, not seeing you know, <laughs> the light at the end of the tunnel. But for, for people who have experienced that, you know, uh, for, for longer um, and will continue to do so after the pandemic, this is even more, uh, of course, significant and acute. So that's the, the being stuck on land, I think, was, was uh, something that drew me very much. And also the, this idea of are these people that she sees this, this city um, uh, below water and says, do, do these people feel they were invincible also, you know, that they're not susceptible to violence or vulnerability. So uh, again, very human, a very human way to uh, think about how we feel we're always invincible until something, a crisis strikes and we realize, well, that's not the case. So in a sense, I think that the, the, the issues that are there are very much uh, connected to marginalized voices, if we want to take that direction in terms of migration, age, class. But the way, and particularly now that we read it in that particular moment, or we listen to it in that particular moment, it is very much connecting with global, kind of wider global issues that people can connect to rather than feel, okay, why is this relevant to me, you know? And that's something that I realize uh, with, with particularly contemporary women playwrights work, how they really tap into these global issues from a personal perspective, but they make them really kind of reach out to uh, wider uh, audiences, which is very important. Yes. And how, how do you feel? Um, can Is the audience connected to the wider issues? Because for me, it feels it is through the body of the protagonist because you are experiencing something really sensuous through the water and the rhythm of the swimming. And then all these thoughts are connected within this one individual, which I find really interesting. Absolutely. And I think it is this um, sense, sensual experience of, yes, smelling as well, kind of then the experience of being immersed in water, smelling the sea, being, you know, aware of the, the sea life around you. I suppose this is something that many of us have uh, got an experience of. And yeah, it is this, this, um, this embodied experience that you need from an audience in, in the theatre, that they need to take away something that they have felt deeply. And whether you, you uh, this is just um, an audio piece and you don't have a visual, you know, this is equally important because it is about remembering how it feels like and kind of thinking at it from a different perspective. I mean, I, I love the sea, I love swimming. I come from Greece, you know, and <laughs> I, I forget very much how much this, um, the, the water is, um, you know, it holds these different um, stories and uh, dangers and truths. So mm. it is that personal connection. Yeah. Yes, especially sea swimming. Yeah, well, I, some... I think sea swimming sits in a really interesting place because on the one hand, it's 
it's so long like that you know that that channel swim is so arduous and, and long basically that it's 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 a journey but it's also it's not a journey in the sense that like a, like a migration um it's still kind of under the the umbrella of, of leisure um so it's a sort of liminal space of it it's it's still just about leisure pleasure but it's also a journey um yeah, I suppose, and, and I suppose there's there's so many different sorts of of travel, aren't there? Um, and it's it makes total sense that she would be thinking about um, the very different types of of journey that involve water as well. Mm, yeah. Um, so in this play, um, the environment sort of has a character of its own. It plays a role. I wonder if you could say a bit more about the environment and the role of the environment in theatre. I mean, blue is very much about. Uh, it takes place in in a in an environment, and it very much talks about how we we don't pay attention to that until there is a crisis, uh, until there are huge fires, um, as she mentions in in the play. And this is very um, very this is very important because it represents, I suppose, how we experience this slow violence that is happening to our environment, and we don't often notice it. It kind of burns in the background, and there is some kind of eruption. And we saw that uh, obviously last summer as well with all the wildfires in in uh, Europe. We see it every year, really. Um, so I think the, this line, the Earth is a wonder, is particularly important because it reminds you that you need, or we all need to reconnect with that wonder. Uh, and this is what Caridad's work is doing in general in other plays. I think she's very, very uh, interested in, in um, fusing these issues uh, of the environmental crisis with, with the contemporary moment and how we, we need to reconnect and I suppose theatre um, has been tackling environmental change and crisis for a long time now, but it, the way it's doing it, and many scholars have argued, what is the best way, the most effective way, so audiences go away and don't feel numb, <laughs> don't feel, oh my gosh, what am I going to do, or don't feel, this is too much, too many facts, I don't know how to process these. And, you know, I suppose this play is quite doing that in the way that it asks you to think about your embodied experience in the, the environment, in an environment and how you, um, you, you are affected by, by that. So I think, yeah, this is a really, really important question for theatre practitioners at the moment. I think, I think it's also true that it is pulling you on side by putting you in the head of the protagonist and then it is that reaction of there was this moment when we took it all really seriously and then we started thinking about other things. So it's very understanding and has a lot of empathy for, for people and their fallibilities as well and, and the way that we want to engage but we're not always able to. Absolutely, yes, I agree. I agree and, and it's, it's true. I mean, we're still trying to find ways to address this and we always, I find myself completely uh, numb sometimes or at a loss okay I'm doing this is this enough you know I'm not I'm not going to save the world how can I <laughs> you know? so I think everyone is in that kind of um, uh, we all desire very much to change uh, positively um, 
this this crisis but it's just yeah how do you start mm, yeah uh, I was just thinking as well um as a uh, as an academic kind of work, working in the performing arts we've had um, I think we've had a couple of academics on the podcast so far, um, but we've never had, I don't think, unless I'm horribly forgetting someone, um, but I don't think we've ever had someone from a performing arts department. And I think it's a really interesting space in itself, because I think when people become curious about theatre, they immediately they know about the theatre and maybe kind of trying a bit of acting, trying a bit of writing. But I think that step of academia um, is is quite foreign to a lot of people. Um, so how did how did you come to it, and how do you find working in it? I guess. Yeah, we. I mean, we all have very very particular stories to tell about that, I suppose. And uh, thinking about my students as well, they they all do have these stories. Uh, I mean, my story is pretty, yeah, straightforward. I came from an English department, really. I mean, I studied English uh, in Athens and uh, literature. And I thought, yeah, I should get out at some point, you know, soon. <laughs> and I know I like the theater and drama and I want to migrate there. And then uh, I came here and I've been here for nearly 18 years now. So I studied sort of theater and performance uh, through my postgraduate years. And then I found uh, my way in university departments and teach students who were really and are really keen to study theatre and um, as you say different aspects of theatre often not so much interested in the political side but I think you know having having taught across um, a lot of different uh, types of, of departments I think um, everyone is really interested in in that connection with the present and their own experience as young people in this, this society. So I suppose having plays that explore these aspects and then being exposed then to plays that speak to them personally makes, makes all the difference because then they can explore it practically. They can act, they can direct. Mm -hmm. And yeah, then they can connect with these ideas that mm -hmm. might feel, you know, why am I, <laughs> am I going to study that now? Why is it useful sort of thing? Mm, giving a context I suppose de deepening that understanding beneath the kind of uh, yeah the creative work they might then go and do if they want to go and do that side of it mm. absolutely and I think social engagement is is very a very important aspect of theatre and I think everyone can you know who, who has studied or has been involved in that is is sort of doing it in some way it's just acknowledging it when I started teaching, most of I, I got a lot of resistance for doing feminist theatre and talking about feminism. And, you know, we had long debates about what it is and what is not. And why is it, you know, something we need to really understand? And I, I don't have that example, that uh, issue so far in the last few years, because people, you know, in the light of the Me Too, I suppose, as well, are more um, aware, are more familiar with what's happening in the industry as well. And it's quite, it's quite interesting that this has changed now. Um, it's positive. Was, what was that initial criticism or resistance? What was that around, that initial kind of consternation? It was mainly, um, well, we're equal now. Why do we need to care about the past, you know? <laughs> right. okay. And are we equal? That's another question. Exactly. The first question was, okay, let's <laughs> unpack 
that first, uh, how do we reach full equality? So I think the figures, which, uh, you know, can be, I suppose, uh, used in very different ways, but I think the figures speak uh, louder than any explanation. I think they, they get the sense of, oh, gender pay gap, that's a reality. Uh, oh, representation in the theater. Let's look at the figures, you know, when tonic theaters work. And that, that I suppose, was quite convincing. Mm -hmm. But also this idea of the past not being um, useful or uh, important, I think that that has been really dismantled um, in the last few years and the whole decolonizing culture and, and history, I think, is, is a very important move as well, alongside feminism, to, to teach us about that, that past. Mm and how it informs the present. I'm wondering as well, is that conversation different in, in Greece? Because of course, Greece is the home of theatre really, the, the, the original home um, in terms of that appreciation of, of history and the importance of understanding the history of it before you then go and make it. Do you think that's different in Greece or compared to the UK? Or? It's in Greece, it's very interesting how history absolutely plays a very important role, even, even more so than here maybe, but it plays an important role to reinforce particular ideas about the nation and our you know, connection to this glorious ancient past. And this, this is quietly, um, quietly, uh, it's, it's, it's uh, it dism been dismantled as well at the moment. I mean, we, we just celebrated um, 200 years since the formation of the Greek nation uh, in 1821. And a lot of theatre artists start asking different questions about, uh, about these constructs and, and how we are taught history at school. Uh, and we don't question, you know, the invisible powers of, you know, even colonialism, because we, we weren't probably colonized, but we, we were re, uh, reinvented by all the foreign philanthropists who came in Greece, uh, like Lord Byron, and we saw ourselves through their gaze. So there is a complex history there that we love talking about sometimes, but sometimes we, we try to leave, you know, the difficult questions under the carpet. But we, I think, are, or artists in Greece are trying to address this history now in a different way and it's quite important. That's, that's really great. I think we're nearly at the end of our time unfortunately but we have one last question which we ask everyone again and that is are there any women that don't have to be related to the theatre, they can be historical figures or people you know personally and that have inspired you in your life or in your work? There's so many. <laughs> I think I really, I really get inspiration from um, thinkers like um, Sarah Ahmed, uh, whose, whose thinking has shaped my thinking a lot. Playwrights like Debbie Taki Green, who I, I discovered, uh, you know, 10 years ago or so, and I really, really follow her work very closely. But also um, Phyllis Nash, as I mentioned before, has always inspired me. Women who use different languages, different forms um, to, to express their experiences um, always inspire me. So, yeah, there's so many to enumerate here. But I think these are some, some of the key names, I would say. 
That's brilliant. We will collate a list of all these amazing names and put them on our website. So that is a really great addition. Thank you. And it's been really lovely to meet you and really interesting to talk. So thank you for coming. It was a pleasure to meet you both. And thank you so much for the invitation. Blue was written by Caridad Svitch, directed by Lily McLeish and performed by Irene Jacob. Sound design was by Julian Starr. Our special guest was Marussia Fragu and our episode hosts were Josephine Start and Tamara von Werton. The episode editor was Lily McLeish. Fizzy Sherbet is produced by Steph Weller for Playwell Productions and Amina Hamid Productions. This episode is only possible thanks to the kind support of the National Lottery through Arts Council England and the Sainsbury Foundation. Thanks also to our anonymous supporters, you know who you are. You can find out more about Fizzy Sherbet on fizzysherbetplays.com and if you enjoyed this episode, please like, follow, subscribe and review.